Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we're going to take a look back at the month of August and answer some listener questions about the Orioles farm system. Kyle Glazer from Baseball America was scheduled to join us tonight, but due to a last-minute emergency, he could not join us. So his appearance right now is scheduled for next Tuesday. Uh, So we'll have a little bit more about that over the next week or so. But for now, we'll get into tonight's episode, which is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. So we'll start off with an article that's up on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com now, written by Bob Phelan. And Bob, as always, takes a look at his uh, down-on-the-farm segments each week on the site. And interesting trio of names in the on-fire segment this week. Yeah, I've heard of this writer before. He's he's not too bad, but uh, no, uh, I've heard about it. Um, yeah, there was interesting names. I like all these guys. I had Michelle Disown, Kyle Stowers, and Zach Peak on the three up or the on fire section. And I feel like these are three guys who, at least for me personally, have really r- risen, risen their stock uh, over the past month or really the whole season this season and uh, are definitely going to be higher when we go over our top 50 prospect update here for September. Yeah, Stowers is name that kind of jumps out at me because he feels like he's a guy that's really jumping up prospect boards right now because of how good his power has been this year. And Bob, you noted that his strikeout numbers are up a little bit this year, but his walks are way up, which you have to take as a good thing. Yeah, I feel like it's combined with the numbers and with what uh, Ryan Fuller said to us when we talked to him a month or so ago, I feel like he is making a concerted effort into noticing his pitch, zeroing in on it, and giving it his A swing. So that could lead to more strikeouts, but if he's only swinging at the pitches he thinks he can get to with that power swing, that could be why there's more walks, and maybe they're more willing to sacrifice the strikeout for the power right now. So, And he's got plenty of it, man. He's He hits the ball hard. It goes far. I mean, his swing is like all out he almost like could tumbles over it seems like when he gives it his full swing so it's exciting hopefully he can continue that maybe the strikeouts can go down a little bit as he gets used to this approach and the walks can continue where they are yeah i just think about when we had eric long and hanging on and he said you know that kyle stower swing is like he he literally corkscrews himself into the ground it's almost like cartoonish uh and it's pretty exaggerated but he, he's playing so well this year and i mean yeah, he has the 34, looking at his numbers now, 34% strikeout rate when he was with Aberdeen and a 30% strikeout rate in Bowie. I I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm willing to turn the other way and kind of ignore those strikeout numbers when he's walking around close to 15% for the year between the two levels. When you have that high of a walk rate, you have a, an on-base percentage north of 375 between two levels. It's at 375 right now at Bowie. 
145 WRC plus. I mean, he's well above average hitter and he leads the entire organization right now with 21 home runs. So I think in this day and age, we've had Stephen Loftus on. We, we talked to plenty of other guests that we've had on the show that basically all said the same thing. That's Major League Baseball now. That's strikeouts. And so like, I'm willing to turn the other way and, and kind of ignore those numbers when you put when you look at everything else at his stat line and everything else he does. And even the defense, that's something that I, there are a few guys on my list that I wanted to pay attention to the defense more this year because I feel like we have a, a good idea of what these guys are like at the plate and uh, with a lot of these hitters. But the defense, I've been wanting to see him challenged a bit more. And when we were all in Bowie together a couple weeks ago, I think he made like one throw where you could really see the arm strength, which is a big bonus for me as well. So the defense is there for him as well. He's kind of this you know, slightly fuller image of who Kyle Stowers is, and it's a pretty good ball player. Yeah, he's not going to be one of those guys that gets stuck at first base as he moves up. You can tell that he's got the tools to at least be an above-average outfielder at the major league level. And yeah, you know, the book on him coming out of Stanford in the 2019 draft was a lot of power, but you're going to have to take the strikeouts to go with it. And I think the question that the three of us had coming into the season was, you know, what are the walks going to look like? And is the contact going to be there? Because we know that the strike, that the home runs and the strikeouts are going to be there. And Bob, you actually had Stowers off your top 30 at the beginning of the year, correct? Yeah, I did. It's embarrassing now, but just goes to show the work he put in in the time since the 2019 season where his walk rate was like 7% or something. It was not good. And he was striking out a lot, not as much as now, but I don't know. I just didn't see it with him. I saw him live a few times in Aberdeen in 2019, and it just wasn't that impressive. I do think he's noticeably better now. But, yeah, I definitely had him off there. And like I said in the article, I feel like he's a tall, athletic frame, but he's not, like, balked up. So I feel like there's even some room to grow as far as that power goes, kind of like Ryan Mountcastle. You know, when he was coming up, he was athletic frame. And then as he got stronger, as the closer he got to the major league level, that's when the power really started to come. So if if there's any more power here in Stowers, it could be 40 home run type stuff. Yeah, I think there is more power there. And the biggest thing for me, though, is those walks. Like with Mountcastle, we've seen that you're not going to get guys with 5% or lower walk rates to improve on that. That's who he is. That's what Ryan Mountcastle is going to be for his whole career. But he's doing enough elsewhere at the plate to become a valuable hitter at the major league level. I and mean, he's been hot, especially over the last month or so at the major league level. And if Stowers can do that as well, but he already brings the walk rate to the table, then I think you have a much better player overall hitter to work with. Yeah, I yeah. think that's – oh, go ahead, Bob. I was just going to say, he might not ever have the raw hit tool that Mountcastle has. seems like he can swing and get to anything and drive it uh, with some exit velocity, but – he might be a more complete overall hitter when all said and done. Yeah, and then certainly I feel like we have a better grasp of what his potential is. And there's reason to be excited about him going into 2022, especially, you know, right now he's really lining himself up to start next season at AAA, which I think even if the three of us had a completely optimistic view on Stowers coming into this year, I don't know that we would have said he'll start 2022 at AAA because he's going to go to AA and actually be better than he was at high A. <laughs> Certainly not. I mean, it's going to be him and Robert Newstrom leading the charge in the outfield for AAA Norfolk to start 2022. And it's like, you Neil Diaz, who? Hey, and that's, you know what? That's fine. Uh, I, I was going to make this point, I think, later on when we talk about our, our top 50 update. Uh, go ahead, become a patron, little as $3 a month, and you can uh, get that updated list on Wednesday. But, um, you know, 
with using El Diaz, you know, I don't care about the Manny Machado trade anymore. It is what it is. It's done. It's gone. Diaz is here. He's not playing that well. Could this be the end of using El Diaz? I don't know. Probably because it's been really bad. But when you have guys like Kyle Stowers and Robert Newstrom stepping up, Johnny Reiser, Zach Watson, when you have, and there are questions about those guys as well, but when you have all of these outfielders stepping up that they are in Bowie, I'm not concerned about Diaz's struggles anymore as, as much as I would be if Kyle Stowers was hitting, you know, 210 with a 35% strikeout rate and nine home runs right now in Bowie. I'd probably be more concerned and we'd probably be talking about using El Diaz right now and how the outfield depth, Kerstad's still not on the field and who's the future outfielder of this team outside of, you know, Colton Cowser and such. But I feel pretty good about this outfield situation, even if Diaz is struggling. I mean, people kept saying, why do, we, why do they keep drafting the outfielder? We have, why do they draft another outfielder? Well, this is why. Depth is not a bad thing ever. The worst case is what? You have a bunch of studs that you can trade for some stuff where they all miss. I guess it's actually the worst. But, I mean, depth is definitely a good thing. We have it all over the place now, at least on the positional side of things. So, And this is where it comes in handy. Yeah, I completely agree. And I know this is something we'll probably get into in the course of our discussion tonight is that you're not just drafting outfielders who play one outfield position. There's a lot of outfielders in the system now that I think have the ability to play all three positions. And you've got some guys, um, I think particularly lower in the system, that could move on to the infield dirt if you needed them to, in addition to playing one or two outfield spots. So you know, while you're seeing a lot of college outfielders in particular enter the system, it's not like they're stuck at one position. They could potentially handle two or three positions, and not all of them are going to be in the outfield. So yeah. we'll move on. On now to talk about really the big uh, story for the month of August, which was the promotion of Adley Rutzman to Norfolk. And so far, Rutzman has not disappointed at the AAA level. Uh, through 16 games there, he's batting 371 with a 943 OPS and a home run. Now, of course, that comes with a small sample size disclaimer because it's only 62 at bats over 16 games. But at the same time, we know how good of a hitter Rutzman is based on. Uh, you know, what we have seen so far, including his production of Bowie. Uh, so, Nick, I'll just start with you. Um, any, are you the least bit surprised that he's basically hit the ground running at Triple A? No. I mean, this is this is what he was supposed to be doing. I mean, every national writer, and you're seeing more and more of it, uh, from the Eric Long and Hagans to the Kyle Glazers, you know, all these guys, they're getting on shows, they're writing articles about with these midseason updates. When they talk about Adley Rutschman, it is more and more concrete that he is the top prospect in baseball. There's zero debate about that right now. Uh, and he's showing exactly why with, in AAA Norfolk. You mentioned it's only 16 games, but, I mean, a 158 WRC+. plus. The strikeout numbers are still pretty low, like 17%. The walk numbers are still in the double digits. He hasn't really shown the power in Norfolk right now, and that's fine. I'm not concerned about that at all. Norfolk is an extremely tough place to hit home run. And the biggest contribution he's making is with the pitchers. I mean, Kyle Bradish has had more good outings than bad ones, I feel like, since Rutschman has come up. Michael Bauman has been better. He hasn't really had the opportunity to be caught by Rutschman. I feel like every time Bauman comes up, except for maybe his last start, Rutschman's playing first base or DHing. Uh, but you're seeing growth with the pitchers at the AAA level. And hopefully that includes Grayson Rodriguez here sometime soon. But, I mean, you just – everything on the field he does it all extremely well and so i think there's no more debate he is the top overall prospect in all of baseball and i'm not surprised in the least bit that he's performing this well and let's not 
pretend that he's the number one prospect just because, you know, Wander Franco came off the list and there's really no one else competing for that spot. I mean, Bobby Witt Jr. is absolutely demolishing baseball in general uh, as like 20 years old and is killing it. Julio Rodriguez, same thing. Young international prospect with tremendous upside and is performing. I think Adley Rutschman is cementing himself as a generational talent. And it's obviously you have to come up and do it, but he's passing every test along the way here. Yeah, I do want to get into the pitching aspect of this a little bit more because one of the things that I thought was important for Rutzman to get time at AAA was that he would be catching guys that weren't necessarily your prototypical top prospects, uh, but they had major league time. They might have one or two good off-speed pitches, and that would be important for him to look at. And while I do think it is still important, uh, you both kind of noted this, which is that the guys who are the prospects, Bauman and Braddis in particular, have looked good when Rutzman's behind the plate. Yeah, I've got the numbers right here, and we can run through some of these. I mean, and Rutschman hasn't caught all of these all of these outings right here, but I mean, Ofelki Peralta, three and zero, a three point seven four ERA, uh, seventeen strikeouts in twenty one innings since his promotion to Norvik. Michael Bauman, a one point six nine ERA in four starts. Uh, even Dean Kramer. Let's talk about Dean Kramer. Uh, he, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I was done with Dean Kramer watching him pitch. It was the outing against Memphis he had a couple weeks ago. And I know the entire Norfolk roster just did not show up to Memphis in, in that entire series. But Dean Kramer, the, in the month of August, 15 innings, 14 strikeouts, just five walks. He does have a 4.60 ERA. Uh, shout out to Jordan Katz uh, over there on, on Twitter. He asked, he actually asked last night, uh, what was Dean Kramer's ERA with Adley Rushman behind the plate? And it's like a 4.50, but he's not walking anybody. And he's striking out a lot of guys with Rushman behind the plate. Hey, Alex Wells, Cody Sedlock. I mean, we can go through the whole list here. Guys are pitching really well. The only issue really on the pitching side of things has been Kevin Smith. And I think that's a whole nother discussion. But the top prospects are pitching pretty well with Rushman behind the plate. And like Vivek said, the Adley effect is real. And that's the truest statement there is right there. It's going to be such a tremendous difference. It's going to be so stark around May of next year when we go from Pedro Severino and Austin wins with their bottom 3% um, frame rate and can't even catch a ball, can't throw anybody out. It's going to be incredible to, <laughs> the difference that Adley's going to make right away. You've seen already, you posted some highlights on Twitter last week, Nick. Even though you're on vacation, he had the ball pop out of his glove, throws behind the runner. He's he's just incredible out there. He, he's always in the game. He's never distracted. He's always right in the moment and his hard work and dedication is paying off. That that play was unbelievable. It's just so quick and it's it's instinct. He's not thinking about anything out there. He just does it automatically. And there are a lot of times in Bowie too, when you talk about his defense behind the plate, I mean, framing and stuff like that's something I can't really sit here and judge or pretend to, you know, I can evaluate that. But what I can see is when he when he has runners on first base, his ability, it's just flawless, like perfect execution. And I don't think we're looking at that at that through orange colored glasses. It is literally quick, flawless execution of him popping up, throwing at the first base, perfect throws almost every single time. He's yeah, he's made some mistakes, of course he has, but for the majority of the time, perfect throws right on the line gunning guys down on second base. I mean, it's it's like nothing we've seen at the major league level this year, which I know isn't saying much. But <laughs> So I want to get into a player who we were high on coming into the season, and Bob and I talked about him a lot last week, and that's Ryland Bannon. But I did want to bring him back up just to 
kind of finalize what he did for the month of August and give Nick a chance to weigh in since um, Nick couldn't join us last week. Uh, 65 plate appearances over the month of August. Bannon hit 10 home runs with 18 RBIs, finished the month with an OPS of 1.194, a 281 average. Now, Bannon, if you've been following the AAA season, you know has had a rough go of it. Got off to a slow start, got hurt, came back, and was pretty bad over the month of July, but caught fire in the month of August. Bob and I talked about this a little bit last week, Nick, but I want to give you a chance to weigh in. Do you think that this uh, you know, line that we saw over the month of August is just a statistical fluke, or do you think that it's a product of him being healthy finally? I think it's a little bit of a mix of both. I mean, the, the oblique injury, when that happened, I was watching that game, and I still remember it pretty vividly. It, he just took a, a mean hack at the plate and instantly threw the bat down, grabbed his side, so grabbed the oblique, uh, and it was – he went straight to the clubhouse. He didn't stop to talk to a trainer or a coach. He immediately went to the clubhouse and like, that was bad. Um, and yeah, guys come back from oblique injuries, but I feel like that's an injury that just lingers forever. And it takes, you might feel okay to get out there and field and maybe it doesn't hurt completely when you swing a bat, but there's no way you're hundred percent. It can take some guys, you know, two months, maybe even three months to fully heal from that injury. Um, and I think now it's just, he's healthy. He's seeing the ball. Well, the 10 home runs in, in the month is pretty extreme. I don't think he can do that at the major league level. But I think somewhere in the mix there is where you find Ryland Bannon. And I think for me, you know, he's still only sitting like 236 or so over his last 30 days. Yeah, he's walking some. I, I kind of feel like you might as well just put him up at the major league level and let's see what you got. And if he's got it, he's got it. If he doesn't, you can go ahead and move on. I feel like the same with using LDS too and, and that both of these guys put him up in the major league roster tomorrow, let him finish out the month and say, can you stay healthy? Can you hit the ball? If not, we're moving on. We have other options and that's fine. But really what else can Ryland Bannon do at the AAA level? Yeah, I completely agree. Bring him up Wednesday when the rosters expand and he has a 150 batting average for balls in play around that for uh, AAA. So who knows how much of an effect that is. So let him get like a fresh start, a blank slate on his stat line in the major league level. Let him see what he can do. Obviously, he's got some power. He can take a walk. Just run him out there. Throw him out there with uh, Jorge Mateo, Ramon Urias, and Jemai Jones, and just let the Orioles fans have at least a little bit of fun watching the team for the last month. You know, one thing we heard consistently about Bannon coming into the season is what a tough at bat he is. Doesn't give away at bats, and that's why he gets on base so much. And there was value in that, even if the power never quite came around. I didn't feel like we saw that at all out of Ryland Bannon. Uh, early this year. But now you're starting to see that again. I feel like that's the most hopeful thing for me. I don't expect him to be a guy that hits 10 homers a month or even eight homers a month. Um, you know, I, he's not a prolific power hitter all of a sudden, but the fact that he seems locked in is a good sign to me. And I don't think there's any harm in giving him an extended shot at the major league level um, over the final months of the season. Give him at bats at DH, third base, second base, and see what he can do. And he's made a couple plays too recently at third base that has impressed me. And I was never really a big fan of his defense at third base. I always thought the throws were kind of sketchy. And you're always kind of like holding your breath when he's making that throw. And But you really enjoyed watching him play second base defense. And that's where I thought, you know, with the weakness the Orioles had at that position this year, if Bannon wasn't hurt, I think he definitely would have gotten that first crack before, you know, 
the Jemai Jones, and we would have had this big Jemai Jones blow up on, you know, Orioles Twitter and such. But I think, yeah, you give him the opportunity, and, you know, that allows Patrick Dorian to move up to AAA, let him face more advanced pitching. I want to see what he can do as well. You know, I don't think he's a future starting third baseman for the Orioles either, but he's he deserves an opportunity. Uh, and we've got guys coming up the pipeline. When you talk about Kobe Mayo, Gunnar Henderson, if he moves over to third base, if Westberg's the third baseman, you've got so many other guys. Find out if Bannon can be your your utility guy of the future, or you if he can show he can hit a little bit at the major league level, you can dangle him out in the offseason, and maybe he becomes a trade piece as part of a package. So, yeah, just, I think he's reached that point, though, where you got to just go ahead and bring him up at this point. Yeah, so I will throw out UCL Diaz real quick because Diaz has struggled to stay healthy this year, and when he's been on the field, um, has not hit. That continued over the month of August. And I'll just start with Bob on this one. I know we've talked about this a lot. First off, do you feel like he's been fully healthy at any point this year? And then secondly, knowing what we know right now, would you give him that run over the month of September to see what he does, even if he only ends up with, say, 25 plate appearances or so? Absolutely not to both questions. I think I've seen him. He can still hit the ball hard. He's still got the same tools. But even seeing him try to run out a ground ball or even if he gets a single, he's like hobbling to first base. It's clear his turf there was still bothering him. Always something bothering him. Uh, I'm kind of like until he can just show something, why give him an opportunity? I don't think he's earned it. I think, you know, he's on the 40 man. So if you really want to just have him up there, I'd rather have him get regular at bats at triple a and try to find something here, but I give him a shot in the spring, let him try to start fresh and maybe get, if he's healthy, he can win a job out of spring training, but I'm I'm kind of just like writing him off, and if he can do something, then great. That's a bonus. I mean, 44 games. That's it. That's all he's played this year, and it's a WRC plus is 23 right now in AAA. Like league average being 100. I, I'm not a mathematician, but 23 is not very good. I mean, it's just it could still be healthy too. You mentioned that it is turf toe. So that's just like the oblique injury that's going to linger forever. And same thing. I haven't really seen him challenged out in the outfield. So like, is he sprinting out in the outfield and making those plays? I don't think I've really seen any to see, to judge if he's healthy that way. Um, it's frustrating. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I was like still on the Diaz hype train, but like I gathered my things and I was pretty much ready to, to hop off. Like I think I've hopped off when you, I mean, the guys in Bowie, like I just mentioned, watching the Bowie outfield, that's a must-watch crew every single night. When I watch those guys, I'm just not excited about using El Diaz anymore. If if he comes out in spring training next year and he's hot, great, and he gets that opportunity, I'd much rather watch using El Diaz than DJ Stewart out in the outfield right now. Let's let's roll with that next year. But I just I don't have much hope anymore for Diaz. When Zach Watson's hitting for more power, it's not good. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, let's go ahead and transition to Bowie and talk about that outfield. We've already talked a lot about Kyle Stowers, and I'm going to talk about Johnny Reiser a little bit later on in a segment that you can probably see coming from a mile away if you're a regular (laughs) listener. But uh, Zach Watson's season has been impressive because not only are we seeing him hit, we're seeing him hit for power in a way that I don't think anybody expected him to hit. And on top of that, he's still showing a lot of speed, and he still plays a good center field. And I'm starting to wonder now, is his floor Ryan McKenna with more power? Just kind of throwing that out there. 
McKenna's showing a pretty good pop yeah. too this year. At least when he's in AAA, he doesn't have a or he might have one major league home run, but he's got eleven in AAA. But I mean, that's not a bad comparison. I think maybe McKenna might be a little bit better defensively, maybe a little bit faster, but it's along the same lines. And yeah, Vivek says Watson's a potential twenty twenty guy. Yeah, I could definitely see that. He doesn't walk, but if he's playing a good center field, you're not expecting a ton out of the bat. So. Worst case, he's a fourth outfielder that can play all three positions and hit for some powers. Not bad. I think it's funny you mentioned the Ryan or the Ryan McKenna with pop comparison when I'm pretty sure I don't know if it was like our first prospect list show or it was when the break camp rosters came out and we were dissecting like the Aberdeen outfield. I'm pretty sure I said Zach Watson was like Ryan McKenna without the power before the season started. And now he's only what Adley Rutschman and Kyle Stowers have more home runs in this organization than Zach Watson. Uh, scrawny, tiny outfielder out of LSU. I think tweener, that's the term you've seen a lot with him on like scouting reports, this tweener outfielder. Speed guy, stolen bases, that's about it. And now he has 18 home runs this year uh, between high and double A. Uh, it's great to see. The only thing with Watson for me is that the strikeouts are pretty high and the walks are pretty much non-existent. And like I just mentioned, is are, even with this new player development staff and the emphasis on waiting for your pitch and increasing walk rates across the farm system, it hasn't really worked for Watson yet. I don't think in terms of like actual producing walks, uh, he's clearly getting his pitches. That's for certain. And he's driving them into the outfield. He even had a hit on Sunday that I really enjoyed watching. I mean, I don't know the exit velo numbers. I wish we had more access to that data, but it was a hard hit. It sounded hard on the MILB TV feed. It was past the lunging third baseman. It was a solid single uh, in the 5.5 hole. Love that kind of hitting. But the walk rate scares me. When he's like a career on base percentage under 300, that's kind of rough for me. And that's the only thing that sets me back just a little bit with Zach Watson. I just wonder if you get him on that Joey Ortiz program in the offseason, bulk him up, not bulk him up because you still want that speed to play, but just strengthen him up a little bit maybe. You know, add a little good weight to his frame, and maybe he can be like that Adam Jones. I mean, he never really walked either, but if he can hit 20 home runs and play a decent center field, steal a couple bases, I mean, maybe that's a role he can play. Obviously, it would be a poor man's Adam Jones, but it's something. Yeah, I, I see what Nick is saying. I, I would like to see the strikeouts drop a little bit and the walks go up. I don't know what effect that would have on his power, um, but that that is something that I would like to see a little bit. I will throw this out there, though, because this kind of takes me by surprise when you consider how little Zach Watson walks and for how much power he's hitting for. 21 steals and 27 attempts, which is a good number. And I know that you know we could probably spend a whole show talking about whether or not stolen base has any value at the major league level right now. But to have that tool at your back pocket, as we've seen with Cedric Mullins this year, that's still going to go a long way. So the fact that Watson's still putting up those type of stolen base numbers without walking a lot and hitting for power when he does make contact, for me, is a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to talk about Taron Vavra for a second here Mm -hmm. since we're in double-A because he came back off the IL missing a good solid, what, two months with the back injury, and he's just picked up right where he left off. Who knows how long that was bothering him when he went in that slump before he hit the IL. He's just... He's, as the word is, hitterish. He just, he knows where to hit it, and he hits it hard. He hits it right where they're not. And I want to see what you guys think, if he's going to get uh, about a month in AAA here or 
you think they'll move him up or keep him in Bowie for the rest of the season for the playoff push? It's a tough qu- I think you're going to see a lot of guys go ahead and stick in Bowie who are in there. Maybe you move Grayson Rodriguez up. I mean, there's some rumors apparently going around uh, Twitter right now, but I think if I think go ahead and just keep this core in Bowie and let them win together. I, we've talked about that on the show, I think, before. I know there's discussion about that. How important is winning at the minor league level? I think I, I want to say you guys asked Johnny, talked to Johnny Reiser. Uh, you touched on this subject with him last week. Um, I think it is a little bit important, and it's good for these guys to go out there and win together, win that championship, and then take that attitude with them up to Norfolk, up to Baltimore as they move up the ladder. And with Vavra, I don't see any harm in going and keeping him around for the playoff push. And if you want to send him to Arizona, uh, that's great. You can go ahead and do that as well. And even he may not even need that extra time in Arizona if you can work with him individually in Sarasota or something. Uh, because I, I think with Vavra, for him to hit as well as he did when he come, comes back, came back from his rehab uh, assignment, to me, like this is a guy who he's playing exactly like I thought, or at least I was hoping he would play when we acquired him from the Rockies which is fantastic to see. And I really think this guy has a future as a really valuable utility player at the major league level. Not like a Stevie Wilkerson utility type (laughs) player who provides no value whatsoever, except for like one catch that people want to hang their hats on. Uh, Other like a true (laughs) utility player that he's going to provide a lot of value, even if he's not in the starting lineup every single day. I'll throw this out there as far as middle infielders are concerned. Taron Vavra, I think, performance-wise, is worthy of a promotion to AAA, and I think it would be a test for him. But I might almost put Caden Grenier up there. Because with Grenier, we know how good his defense is. The bats had some ups and downs this year at Bowie. He does strike out too much. But overall, I think that you look at the numbers, and they're about what you reasonably would have hoped for coming into this year, maybe a little bit better. And the other thing, too, is that I'm looking at kind of the offseason implications Taron Vavra is getting a 40-man roster spot in the offseason. I have zero questions about that. I don't know quite what to make of Grenier. I do think you'd have some teams that are interested in him for his defense if he were available in the Rule 5 draft. But I'd also like to see what he does against more advanced pitching because if he goes up to Norfolk and does roughly the same as he is in Bowie, I might be inclined to protect him just to have that depth in the system. And let him, you know, get an extended time at AAA next year. But if he's not pushed this year, I don't know how you assess that. Maybe the Orioles feel like they can, you know, see what they need to see by leaving him at Bowie. But if you're going to move a guy up, I might almost go as Grenier for that reason. Let Vabra stay in Bowie, get fully healthy. Uh, hopefully have, you know, an extended run in the playoffs and go to Arizona after that. Yeah, it's not a bad. I would have to really look at the roster, and I'm sure we will do that in a month or so. But to really figure out if I, I'm leaning towards not protecting Grenier, that's just my initial instincts there. But Vivek says if they cut Martin and add Grenier, maybe that's an option. I mean, if if they brought Martin up for a few weeks earlier just to see what they had going into the off season, and they sent him down to maybe they didn't, you know, love what they saw. But there's just so many questions this off season. It's going to be a really really important offseason for the Orioles and um, just back one last note on Vavra is I feel like he's one of these guys Mountcastle same way born with a bat in her hand no matter what they're going to hit doesn't matter so that's just what he's going to do and it's just find him a spot we'll see if him and Jemai Jones compete for second base but if he could play center field maybe shortstop DH in a pinch that wouldn't hurt either yeah definitely love Vavra and with Grenier 
I was thinking about that too, before with Vivek's comment there about cutting, you know, Richie Martin with the Orioles sending Martin down to AAA. Like, what is is that? Because there's something there with the injury where they say, look, maybe you're not fully healthy, and we just don't know. Is there something that they sent him down specifically to work on, or is this they're just not on the Richie Martin hype train anymore, and they're just ready to move on from him? I don't know if they're ready to move on from Richie Martin, then. I guess unless you're going to go out and sign the Carlos Correa that everybody's uh, going out there <laughs> demanding, unless you're going to sign a, a big name free agent shortstop, then I mean, why not go ahead and protect Grenier? Let move, let him move up to AAA, see what he can do against that. I mean, he gets on base. He's got a 350 on base percentage this year, uh, so walk rate's good. The power's been pretty good, so showing some strength. The defense is, I don't know, I'm not going to say like Gold Glove caliber, but it's really, really good defense. So that could be a guy. Mason McCoy's not that guy. We know that. I think we figured that out this year. So if you're going to shuffle through some shortstops again next year, I guess go ahead and give Grenier a chance. You can always remove him from the 40-man at some point next year and cut bait. Yeah, I got it. You say you protect him for the Rule 5 draft. Then you sign Correa after that. And then you wave him, pass him through waivers, and uh, keep him in your system. (laughs) So I feel like we can't move on from Bowie without bringing up Grayson Rodriguez. And his most recent start, which came on Saturday, was another dominant one. Five innings, three hits, two runs. Um, you know, nine strikeouts against uh, two walks. And we've seen him tested in a few more outings this month than I think we had seen previously. But we've also seen him work through it a little bit. Um, so I'm going to go really with two questions here. The first one is one we've kind of addressed before, but I want to circle back to, which is, does he get time at AAA? And secondly, does it bother you that he basically never works past the fifth inning? Or he does rarely? I don't think so. I mean, they're limiting his innings. Obviously, if he has an outing where he's at 50 or 60 innings after five innings, I think I think he's gone six innings maybe once or twice this year. But I think it's more of just damned if you do damned if you don't kind of thing like if you push him too much people are going to say you got to protect that arm he's your future you're wasting it in the minors so i'm not too worried about that uh but i do think he will get time in triple a whether or not it's this week with the rumors going around or if it's just after Bowie season ends and he gets a week or two up in triple a i think they're going to want to see that before the end of the year yeah, I think the, the sign was when I think there's a quote from Michael Elias the other day or a week or so ago where there are daily discussions about when the best moment would be to move up Grace Rodriguez. That's exactly what they said like two weeks before they moved up Ali Rutschman. So it's going to happen. It needs to happen. Um, but with I'm see, this is a question that I have for for Kyle Glazer when hopefully we can get him back on next week. Um, is that is this commonplace across minor league baseball? And because I know every single time there's a Grayson Rodriguez start or really any start, I know everyone jumps in, not everyone, but a lot of people like to jump in on the comments, you know, on Twitter and say four innings, what the heck's going on? Like another 75 pitches. There we go. Take him out. You're not challenging him. I do get that to an extent. I wonder, you know, you're protecting guys this year. Is it going to hurt them next year when you ramp them up a little bit or are we going to ramp them up a little bit? Or is this, I think that you guys were talking about this a little bit before we came on the air, you know, are we preparing guys for the Tampa Bay Rays model style pitching to go, hey, if you can only go four dominant outings, then that's fine. Go ahead and give us four dominant outings and then we'll we'll shorten the game that way. 
But his last outing, I went back and watched a little bit of it today since I wasn't able to watch his last start. But it was the perfect outing, I think, in my opinion, because he got into so much trouble early, walk, home run to start things off. Second inning, really got into trouble again, and you thought, here we go. This is another two, three inning outing for Rodriguez. They're going to pull him, go ahead and protect him, but they didn't. And he finished the second inning with three straight strikeouts, and then it was just three straight outs in the third inning. Go to the fourth inning, same thing, three straight outs. Fifth inning, three strikeouts. I mean, that's what you want to see him challenge, and he lived up to that challenge. So I think if you want to move him up, I think moving him up after that start would be perfect timing. Yeah, I, I'll just say what I have what I said about Adley Rutzman before he was promoted to AAA. I'm good with him going there. I think performance-wise, he's earned it. But do not root for Grayson Rodriguez to get to Norfolk this year because you think it will get him to the major leagues faster next year because there's a lot riding on that that we don't know right now. One of the main things being service time manipulation and what that's going to look like in the future. But otherwise, performance, you know, his performance warrants it. I think he's been tested a little bit more recently and has worked his way through it. And that, to me, is a great sign. I would almost prefer to see that than to have him promoted, you know, after a month of just straight dominance. Because now you feel like, okay, he has been tested a little bit. It seemed like double-A hitters might have starting been, you know, catch up to him a little bit. And he worked his way through it. Yeah. And um, get, him, get his feet wet in AAA. So, to me, that just makes me feel more confident that he will be brought up around the first time that he's eligible in 2022 as long as, you know, he starts off doing pretty well. You would see him in May, June at the latest next year. So the sooner he gets up to AAA, same with Adley, that just means that they're planning on getting them to the major leagues as soon as possible while being smart about it too. I mean, if we so, can end the final three weeks there of the season, Triple AC, Michael Bauman, Grayson Rodriguez, Ophelke Peralta, Kevin Smith in this starting rotation, I mean, that's – we're right there. We are on the verge of uh, <laughs> the talent coming up to the major leagues. And it's I – don't, I don't know. I don't, at the same time, though, I am worried. Like, do you really want to challenge him over those last two weeks of the season, maybe three weeks? Do you really, do you want to push him up and say, all right, go attack AAA hitters now for three starts and give it a little bit more? That's the only concern I would have. And I know most Orioles fans would probably say, please stop talking. Yes, challenge him right now. But And, and I get that as well. So before we move on to Aberdeen, do either of you have anything else you want to add about Bowie? Uh, I mean, I just think yesterday, Garrett Stallings on Sunday looked really good in his outing. I think he started, hopefully that's the sign of him settling in with Bowie. And Drew Rahm, another pitcher that got the promotion from high to double A. The stats don't look great, but I really enjoyed his outing as well on Sunday. They, it seems like they have Rahm and Stalin's piggybacking each other, which I'm fine with to close out the season. Um, Rahm definitely had, was the, the wrong end of a really bad call from the umpires that extended his outing uh, when it shouldn't have been. Uh, but he did really good attacking hitters early and finishing guys off with fastballs up and out of the zone, getting guys swinging. Uh, I think that's more promising signs to show that, you know, this cupboard isn't bare and there are some good pitching prospects down there. And even if the stat lines don't really show it when you look them up, when you watch these guys pitch, there you see a lot of really good things happening right now. And it's just the pieces are all there. And now I have all the faith in the world of that Bowie staff starting to put those pieces together over the final few weeks. Completely agree with that. And I just like to note that Jordan Westberg, he struggled in his first three weeks or whatever in double A, but not too worried. Or I think it's only two weeks, actually, 11 games. 
he did the same thing in Aberdeen when he got promoted. He batted 205 in his first 11 games for the Ironbirds, and he slowly adjusted and figured things out. There was a decent article I read. Maybe it was Steve Mieski, Maluski. God damn it. I uh, forgot how to pronounce his name in this for the moment, but uh, where he talked about, I think it was Ryan Fuller and a couple other guys who just said that, you know, he's just adjusting to a little bit extra velocity right now. They think he's he's doing all the right things and he's going to make the adjustments and it's good for him to be challenged, like Matt Blood said to us. So, yeah, and it's been a long season, first professional season, and he's moved up three levels. So that's a lot to work with. So don't worry too much. Completely agree with that. And I'll move on now to a pitcher that I know all three of us are pretty high on and have been really excited about this year, and that's Zach Peak. And Zach Peak was actually featured in Bob's uh, – down on the farm piece this week. And we've known all year really how good Peak is, but I thought Bob really captured it today on uh, BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Yeah, you know, I think people are sleeping on him. Uh, maybe they're not, but I just feel like he's being underrated right now just because his base stats, like his ERA is a little bit higher than a lot of guys that people might be a little bit more excited about. But he has had a lot of bad luck this season. He's got a high batting average uh, balls in play against him. He, his first star of the year, he got rained out after two innings. Like I just feel like he's pitched a lot better than his baseline says he has a strikeout rate over 30%. Um, what was the stat that I was going to point to? Oh yeah. His FIP and XFIP is like a lot lower than his normal ERA. And his stuff is just filthy. You just watch the video and you can see it. His breaking pitches, his off-speed pitches are are completely nasty. And if he's going to continue to try to get that velocity up as he did in the last uh, off-season, very long off-season, then I think this guy, his floor is like a high-leverage reliever just with the stuff he has. So I think his ceiling and his floor is pretty high, and I'm starting to get excited about him even more so. Yeah, I have – there's another point that I could make about the pitchers in the lower levels of the minors that you know we'll save for when we talk about our top 50 prospect update. But with Peak, I'm going to say I am starting to get a lot more excited about Peak as well now that he's dominating in high A. I mean, four starts this month, 3.63 ERA. You mentioned the FIP is a little bit lower. 19 strikeouts, only three walks in 17 and one-third innings. That's dominant. Um, and that last outing, that was a light switch for me. I mean, it was – the stuff, the, the change up, the swing and miss, getting guys on, on the breaking balls out of the zone. These high hitters really haven't had an answer to his pitching at this point. And it's fantastic to see Zach Peak pitch this well and make that jump from low A to high A because we've seen other guys, one guy in particular that I've been very burned on pretty badly, Ignacio Feliz, hasn't been able to make that jump. We've seen a lot of bad pitching in high A for Aberdeen, I, I feel like, this year. Outside of you know when Drew Rahm and Garrett Stallings were here, there's not been a lot of great pitching there, and Zach Peak is making it look easy. Uh, so hopefully he comes back to Harrisonburg here this offseason and trains again. And I have beers and dinner on me, man, because this is he's putting up a great rookie season. The one thing that I love about the way he's pitched at Aberdeen, especially lately, is that he's not walking anybody. Um, you know, he's had like a few outings, I think, where that walk the walk rate has been driven up because he's walked a high number of guys over a short span. But he's really did not walk anybody in the month of August, and that walk rate has dropped since he went to Aberdeen. That's really the thing that I liked the most, and Nick talked about this a little bit, which is we're seeing that change-up develop. Because I think we knew coming into this year that he had a good fastball, but we weren't sure about the secondaries quite as much. But that change-up, I think, is really improving. 
And we saw, I mean, I think I read something on draft night when we did that uh, live podcast reaction where that someone noted that the Orioles feel like they can teach guys to change up and it's maybe, uh, maybe they're right. Yeah, that, that was the emphasis. He said coming out of college, that was the swing and miss pitch and he felt really comfortable with it. Then got the pro ball with the Angels, wasn't really feeling it, wasn't getting guys swing and miss on it. So the Orioles sent him sent him the, the velo program to increase the fastball velocity. And it was all change up, change up, change up on top of the in, trying to increase your velo. And so far it's working. He's putting it all together. And I really think that last start, I hope he doesn't come back and burn me this week when he makes his next start. But I feel like that last start was the one time where he put it all together and everything was working in that start. Uh, and so hopefully that's a big a big corner that he's going to turn as he has, what, maybe three starts left to end the season. On another note with Aberdeen, this was a topic that we were planning to talk about with Kyle Glazer tonight, and we'll bring it up next week if it's still relevant then, and that's uh, Gunnar Henderson, who's been a little bit more up and down at the plate at high A, certainly, than he was at low A. Uh, struggled a bit in the month of August, and that's driven his overall numbers down. I, I'll just start with Nick here. Has anything you've seen with Henderson over the last 30 days or so given you a little bit of pause, or do you think that this is just part of the growing pain, so to speak, for a young player at that level? I think it's just growing pains, and I'm I'm not really concerned at all. I mean, it's he is starting to heat up a little bit. He's getting some he's walking consistently this entire time, even when he's not hitting the ball, he's walking. You've seen the average tick up. He's getting one or two hits a game now. I think yesterday, Sunday, he was 0 for 2, but he drew two walks. So, like, you're seeing that kind of performance from him. He is still so young. I mean, I don't – I'd have to pull it up to see how much younger he is compared to the rest of the competition in high A. It's young, two, three years probably younger than the pitchers he's facing. It's part of the process. He may not be catching on as quickly as maybe you, you'd like to see, but not concerned at all with Gunnar Henderson. If anything, I think it's the defense that's scaring me the most because I feel like every time I, I watch, it's a throwing error. I think he has 13 or 14 errors on the season, and most of them are throwing errors. The arm strength is there, but the accuracy really hasn't been there for him. But it, this was something I was anxiously waiting to ask Kyle Glazer about. Was you know, He wrote this article and mentioned that play in the lower levels of the minor leagues hasn't been that great this year. Specifically, defense as well hasn't been that good this year. So I wonder if this is just a, a product of the pandemic. You know, Guys are still feeling the effects of that, and it's just taking time to settle in, or, or what it is with Henderson. But I'm not really concerned at all, and I don't think anyone else really should be at this point. Yeah, I'm not concerned either, especially I think I mentioned this in last week, but I just want to really dive into this here. Marco Luciano, number six prospect in all of baseball for the San Francisco Giants. He is a six foot two shortstop who is only two months younger than Gunner. He is all their age, like everyone loves this guy. Gunner is also a six two shortstop. He weighs a little bit more based on uh, minorleaguebaseball.com. But just compare their numbers for low A. Gunner, he batted 312 with a 944 OPS. Marco Luciano batted 278 with a 930 OPS. They, um, Marco played in low A a little bit longer. He got 70 games there, whereas Gunner only got 35. But moving up to high A, Marco Luciano is batting 229 with a 599 OPS, five walks to 37 strikeouts. Gunnar Henderson is batting 217 with a 704 OPS and 33 walks to 78 strikeouts. So at least when you compare the six two shortstops that are top 100 prospects, Gunnar wins out in that uh, realm right there. 
Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. I don't think that there's anything really to be too alarmed by here. At the end of the day, you're still looking at a young shortstop who has a ton of power from the left side of the plate um, that has played against older competition this year and generally did well against you know older players at the alternate site from what we heard last summer. And I've been concerned about the defense too, but I would rather that the arm accuracy be the issue than the arm strength. Because if you go back to when Ryan Mountcastle was developing on the left side of the infield when he was young, it was all about the arm strength. That was always a big question mark. And that was why, you know, one of the reasons why ultimately I don't think he stuck at shortstop or third base. With Henderson, I think if they can just harness it a little bit, and maybe this is something that as we you know get settled into a more normal routine in baseball going forward, you can target a bit, which is, okay, you've got the arm strength to make those throws from the hole, but you've got to find a way to be more accurate. You know, there is part of that development. There may also just be times where you got to the ball, but you don't have a shot of throwing the runner out. Just hold on to it. Yeah, it's little things like that that I think you can improve with younger players. Yeah. And one other thing, too, that I just thought about is that this is his first full season of minor league baseball. 2019 was the half season, getting your feet wet in the, F, or the GCL, then now the FCL. Last year, it was all at Bowie at the alternate site. I wonder how much an effect this 20-year-old kid who's being challenged for really the, the first time in his career, he's being really challenged, and he also is learning to adjust to this grind of traveling the weekly travel for minor league baseball and just the, the day-to-day grind of being a professional baseball player now in the minor leagues. When we know, even though Gunnar Henderson got that big signing bonus when he was drafted what the second round or, or whatever it was uh, a couple of years ago, it's still a grind for these kids. And so for him to learn that as he's continuing to grow up socially uh, and physically and all of that as well, I, I think, I wonder how much of a role all that plays into it as well. Fantastic point. And, yeah, I mean, it's got to be a learning experience. Hopefully he can take away some from it. But at the end of the day, what gives me faith that he's still going to pan out is just you look at his swing. I mean, it's beautiful. It's fast, bat speed. It's he, he can drive the ball anywhere. So, yeah, not too worried. But hopefully he can end the year on a hot streak and give a positive note to go into the offseason with. So Vivek just asked a question uh, over YouTube on the live stream. Is Aberdeen considered a pitcher's park? And Bob, I believe you actually pulled the park effects recently um, and got into that a little bit. I, but um, Yeah, let me pull that up real quick. I think it is from what I remember. Um, goodness gracious, where did I post that? Um, buying time, buying time. <laughs> I think it was, oh, my God, the WhatsApp group is too busy. We have too many people in here commenting. I think I'm scrolling. I did hear that. I don't know if it was a podcast, another Orioles podcast or, or an article I was reading. So apologies if this was like on your show and I'm not remembering correctly, but I feel like I did hear that where someone had said like uh, Orioles hitters have said like Aberdeen is kind of like a, a death park for hitters. Like it's extremely hard to hit the baseball there. So, I mean, if that could play a role as well, but I mean, it's like Bob mentioned, that swing is just so beautiful that, I mean, it's, it's going to play wherever he, he plays eventually when it all clicks for him. Okay, I found it. <laughs> Thank you for vamping there. <laughs> yeah. um, it is in the 77th percentile in runs, the 59th percentile in home runs, and the 93rd percentile in batting average for balls in play. So, yeah, extreme pitcher spark. Yeah, and I think we were anticipating that with the move of high A from Frederick to Aberdeen, we would see that a little bit, but it's definitely been in play this year. And before we move on from Aberdeen, I do want to shout out Hudson Haskin. 
who unfortunately is done for the year as a fractured thumb injury. But he looked really good over his time in Aberdeen. And I think overall, when you look at his numbers between two levels this year, you have to feel pretty good about what he put up, especially with the fact that he had a 381 on base percentage between the two teams. So, Nick, what, anything there about Haskin? Yeah, I mean, that was really unfortunate when I saw that news. And I feel like I heard something about J.D. Mundy possibly having the same, you know, finger, broken finger, fractured finger or something as well. So that might be the end for J.D. Mundy as well. But with Haskin, yeah, I think there are a lot of questions about, you know, will the swing work? Do the Orioles need to change the swing? And clearly I don't think they need to, to tamper with that swing too much at this point. I think it performed pretty well, pretty admirably. He finished the year in high A, 25 games, good walk numbers, good on-base numbers, 115 WRC+. plus. Defense was pretty solid. I think it was a good first season for him. A smaller, coming out of the, a mid-major college program. I mean, I think, I don't know if you could ask too much more. I've had to ask him from his first taste of Pro Bowl. Completely agree. I mean, I don't think he really raised his stock much or lowered his stock much. I think he pretty much held firm with what we thought about him. And another guy who I think could add some strength to his frame uh, in the offseason and add some power. He already has a little bit, but add some power and maybe... He could draw more walks, but he is uh, one of these Brett Cumberland types that can get hit by pitches. I think he's got 18 on the season, so any way you can get on base, you got to do it. Yeah, and we'll have a little bit more on Aberdeen in our final segment, as I know that Nick has someone there that he wants to talk about. But we'll move on to Delmarva now, where the big storyline of the month was a flood of promotions from the Florida Complex League, headlined by Colton Cowser, Kobe Mayo, Connor Norby, Reed Trimble, and John Rhodes, and Billy Cook, who... We talked a little bit about last week. Connor Pavloni was in that mix as well. So a lot of talent from the 2021 draft class and Kobe Mayo, who the Orioles took in 2020, go up to Delmarva. And so far, it's so good for those guys, especially Mayo, who I think continues to really ascend up the prospect rankings for the Orioles. Um, I'll just start with Bob here. Mayo is – we forget that Mayo sometimes is still a teenager – uh, because he looks much older out there, much more mature out in the field than his age suggests. But what have your impressions been of him? I've been super impressed by Kobe Mayo. I mean, the power is real. I can't imagine he's he's like 18, 19 years old, so he's only going to add more to that. I mean, sky's the limit. The arm is strong as could be. It looks like he makes the plays at third base. Like, I think this is definitely one of these potential top 50 type prospects down the line in a couple of years for the Orioles. So super happy with him. And uh, yeah, I was surprised he even got called up to Delmarva and he's having success there as well. So good on him. Yeah, I feel like when we had Matt Blood on, he made it seem like Kobe Mayo was probably going to finish the year. It's been the whole year of the Florida Complex League because he is so young and you have these college draft picks probably going to bypass him they move him up to Delmarva but I think he kind of forced the Orioles hand there that you got to move him up with his performance in the FCO but my thing with Kobe Mayo is I'm going to say this maybe I'm crazy for saying this I don't care I, I honestly believe it I think Grayson Rodriguez like he's he is a special talent Adley Rutschman is a special talent and I'm also placing Kobe Mayo in there as a special talent in this system I don't know what it is but like I have feelings when I watch him play Finally getting to watch him on camera in Delmarva, like, I feel things, and uh, it's, it's positive things. And I, I truly believe this is a special, special kid that I'm excited to watch him grow. 
Yeah, I was just restraining. Sorry, Zach. I was just say I was restraining myself. I kind of feel the same way, and it's very different when you get to see these guys on video compared to just reading the stat lines. And we'll, we'll talk about someone else along the same lines in a minute. I, I saw Del Marva a few weeks ago, and I, I, you know, I got to see Mayo in person. And the first thought I had, and to be clear, I'm not making a player comp. I'm just noting really more than anything the way that Mayo is built. I looked at him and thought that's a young Chris Bryant on third base. He's got that kind of build. And right now, when I watch him play third, I'm impressed by the footwork. Bob noted the arm strength, which is really good. And I think that, you know, over time, we're going to see how he fills out and how agile he stays uh, as he grows. But right now, from what I see, I think he has everything you would want from a major league third baseman. And as long as he can, you know, stay, you know, keep his good footwork, you know, move quickly to the ball. And that arm strength, I think, is always going to be there for him. I think he'll stick at third. You know, now you know, there's a lot of questions there, but based on what I see right now, I think he could stick at third base. Yeah, and just like Chris Bryant, he could do third base, left field, get you know, get in where you fit in type of stuff. And you're not the only person I've heard compare him to Chris Bryant. I, actually, a non-Orioles prospect analyst I, I saw comparing him to Chris Bryant as well. So that's pretty darn exciting right there. Yeah. I've enjoyed watching him play defense as well. Smooth plays, strong throws, accurate throws. I think a lot of plays that you see guys in the low minors typically muff or throw away. He's not doing that. He's doing all the little things right. And, you know, small sample sizes for sure right now. He's a long way to go in his development. He's only 20, I believe, still. Uh, so, but I, I couldn't hold my excitement with Mayo. I, I can do that with other guys and, and pick holes at them. But with Mayo, like, I just, I feel that there's something there. I can't explain it. It's there. Um, I, I hope it pans out. Same way we kind of feel about Gene Pinto, I believe, <laughs> on the pitching side. Yeah, we do love Gene Pinto. and We'll talk about him in a minute. And I want to throw this out, a listener question from uh, David Adams. And he just wants a general sense of what we've learned so far from the promotions and any surprises. So I'll just kind of throw this out to both of you. What has stood out to you, aside from Kobe Mayo, who we just talked about, what has stood out to you with the players that were promoted there uh, from the Florida Complex League last month? For me, I think just general thoughts. There are some guys like John Rhodes who I definitely want to see a lot more of, but I got flashes of, okay, I see what the Orioles saw in him. And and I do – I'm very intrigued by John Rhodes. I want to see a lot more, though. Um, Billy Cook has been kind of fun. Colton Kowser, like – I. I, I'm, I love Colton Kowser. I love this pick. Uh, Stephen Loftus made me more excited about Colton Kowser when we did our pre-draft coverage, and I'm so glad it, the pick was Kowser. Um, but I want to see him challenged more. I think Delmarva's way too – the low A I think is still too easy for him. I wouldn't mind seeing him go ahead and just push him up to high A. Let's see what he can do. Um, Norby's a hitter for me. I, that guy, hitter is the correct term. I don't know what how else to describe him. He hits the ball extremely well. But the biggest surprise for me, a guy that I really like, is uh, Jacob Teeter, the first base prospect at a D2 ranks. He has multi-hit performances in like more than half of his game so far. Uh, he's hitting the ball really well, good defense, a big guy. He's a massive human being. Uh, and it looks kind of awkward because he still has like, this baby-looking face, but this mam- like mammoth man body. And he goes out there, and he looks like he has a lot of fun out there in the field as well. So Teeter is a guy that I am very, very intrigued by, along the same lines of, I think Bob mentioned this in the chat earlier, that T.T. That Bowen's uh, J.D. Mundy style, these big masher first basemen that the Orioles have at the lower levels of the minor leagues now. 
Yeah, I'd say what stands out to me is that you can tell that they <laughs> they acquired a lot of guys with great approaches at the plate. I mean, you look at the walk to strikeout ratios, and it's pretty darn good. Colton Kowser, nine walks to six strikeouts. Connor Norby, five walks to nine strikeouts. Dante Williams, six walks to eight strikeouts. The list goes on and on. Um, so I just like you can see the ath- the athletes that they targeted and the approach that they have, and it makes me confident that they can work with these guys and get them to where they think they need to be. Yeah, I think if there has been a, a little bit of a surprise for me, you know, kind of what Billy Cook has done, he looks like he's going to be a fun player to watch. Um, I admittedly did not know much about him coming out of Pepperdine, but he has been fun to watch so far. And then Bob talked about this with the strikeout to walk. Colin Burns has as many strikeouts um, as he has walks, and that's four over nine games. And that's another, you know, up-the-middle talent that I think, if nothing else, gives this organization depth. Great defense out of him, too. He, You know, he doesn't strike out much. He can walk a little bit. He's got doubles power. Yeah, definitely a guy who, when we drafted him, I was like, I don't really know what's going on here, but just the more I learn, the more I like. So I'll throw out another question from David, and I think now that we've touched on the key players from these drafts, it's a good time to answer it. Who will be the first call-ups from each of the 2019, 2020, and 2021 drafts? Well, I mean... I'm going to say the 2021 draft. I'm going to I'm going to stick with Connor Norby. I feel like I don't know middle infielder maybe as long as the defense is there because we know the Orioles prioritize defense when it comes to their second base prospects. As long as the defense is there, uh, that I think he could be a fast riser. Uh, just to be contrarian instead of saying like Colton Kowser. Um Bob, take away with the other ones while I look up the other draft. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's got to be Colton Kowser for me from the, the most recent draft. He's just so polished, and he, he's shown it already at two levels. Like you said, he could join South Relic as moving up to high A already. Uh, for 2020, it's got to be Jordan Westberg. He moved up three um, levels this year already, and even if he starts next year back in AA, he would be in AAA before not too long, I would assume. And then, of course, Adley Rushman for 2019. He'll be up as soon as he can be next season. Yeah, my picks are exactly the same as Bob's. You know, there's always that little bit of what if, because I wonder if Joey Ortiz had stayed healthy this year and had continued to produce the way he was. I might have picked him before Rutschman for the 19 draft. But now that, you know, we know that Ortiz is going to have to work his way back from a shoulder injury, I would take Rutschman there, Westberg for 2020, and Colton Cowser for 2021. I don't think Connor Norby's going to be too far behind. But if I had to guess right now which one gets there first, I would say Cowser. Yeah, I, I agree. Rutschman definitely has to be the 2019. and 2020, yeah, you look at it, Kershaw hasn't touched the field yet. Hopefully he will soon. Good news there. Um, Hudson Haskins, the injury set him back a little bit. Servideo's injury, Carter Baumler with the Tommy John, and then Kobe Mayo being so, so young. It's got to be Jordan Westbrook from 2020. Before we move on from Delmarva, I'll bring up Gene Pinto. If the three of us um, you know, could fight over a player that we like the most, it would probably be Gene Pinto. And he really showed why over the month of August. And so I'll start with uh, Bob here. Uh, thoughts on Pinto? I mean, it wouldn't translate to a podcast, but I just want to, like, my jaw hit the floor, like, just falling over him. I need to, you know, cool myself off. No, he, he's amazing. I just love watching him pitch. He works fast. He, he never throws a lot of pitches in the five innings he gets in. Usually he doesn't walk a lot of guys. He doesn't give up many hits. He strikes out a bunch. I just love the pitches and what 
how they work and what they do. And I think the sky is the limit. I think this guy could be the number two starter behind Grayson Rodriguez in four years. What if Gene Pinto was the main piece of that trade? Was it, that was Jose Iglesias, right? I get confused as well. Yeah. What if Gene Pinto was the, uh, the main piece and Garrett Stallings was the throw in? Uh, I mean, um, yeah, five, six innings. Looking at his August start, six innings, four and two thirds, six innings, five innings, five innings. No more than two runs in a single outing. Uh, not walking anybody. High strikeout totals. The only thing I mentioned this earlier. The only thing that still scares me is that I've Ignacio Feliz scarred me, and I know Ignacio Feliz is not a guy who was supposed to have any success whatsoever. Being the third player taken in the minor league phase of the Rule Five draft. That guy's not supposed to sniff high A. Three organizations before he turned 21. But same with Zach Peak. Yes, I was super excited about Zach Peak, but I, I held back a little bit just because I want to see what he can do in high A. That's the only thing with Pinto. I, I feel like I was probably the, the low man uh, on our list with G, our new updated list on Gene Pinto. <laughs> I'm willing to drop or uh, send him up 20 more spots is, once he gets to high A. If he can pitch this well, I am fully on board. But that is my only hesitation with Pinto at this point. Pinto, what's impressive for me is that he's only 20 years old. He's not going to turn 21 until January, and he is just dominating at low A right now. And just to give some context here, over the month of August, he pitched 21 and two-thirds innings, walked three batters, struck out 23, 0.83 ERA. So that, I think, really tells you in a nutshell how dominant he was, but it doesn't tell you something we've seen a lot when we've watched his outings, which is how good that three-pitch mix is, how good his fastball looks when he's at his best. So, you know, I agree with Nick. I do want to see him tested. It's probably not going to be this year, but I want to see him tested at high A next year before I fully buy in. But I've been very, very pleased with what he's done this year. So I just wish every pitcher, you don't even need the pitch clock, just teach everyone to throw like Gene Pinto and baseball games will be two hours and 15 minutes, and it'll be the greatest thing for the sport of baseball. <laughs> to yeah, bring his energy, his excitement. That's one thing that I do love as well. He is enthusiastic out there on the mound. And I feel like even when he's not pitching and they cut away to the dugout, he's there on the top step, interacting with his teammates, having fun watching those games. I love the energy he brings out to the field. And, and I wish there were 50 Gene Pintos in this organization. Yeah, so we'll go now to a question from friend of the show, Eric Garfield, uh, who we had on a few weeks ago to talk about the Florida Complex League. He asks, if you were planning a road trip to see the affiliates in the playoffs, where would you be confident in seeing the most or best games? I would say the I, I'm going to go out on a limb. I know Billy's already in playoff position, and Delmarva has some work to do to get there. But with the help of the 2021 draft picks and the aforementioned Gene Pinto, I got to say Delmarva is going to just come in hot down the stretch and, uh, and pull in there and, and have some great games to watch if you're an Oriole fan. Yeah, I think uh, Bowie kind of scares me. If they lose Grayson Rodriguez, uh, how much are they going to be able to replace him there? I know North. this might be not the right way to answer this because Norfolk doesn't technically have a playoff, but they get some like postseason competition there. So I'm going to say like I'm going to Norfolk to watch Grayson Rodriguez and Adley Rutschman and Michael Bauman and all those guys uh, try to take because I think it's two extra series they get and it's teams with the highest winning percentage win some prizes or something that they're doing instead of a real playoff. So I'll say Norfolk with an asterisk there since it's not a real playoff. I'll go with Bowie because I think by the time the playoffs roll around, Jordan Westbrook will be hitting um, like he did at Aberdeen. 
and that will be fun to watch. And even if Grayson Rodriguez does get promoted, you're still going to have some pretty good pitchers uh, down to double-A level. So I'll take Bowie. So Nathaniel asked this question, how do you think the front office evaluates hot streaks like Ryland Bannon's when deciding whether or not to call a player up? I'll just say that Michael Elias did mention that Ryland Bannon is soaring when he had that little media scrum and Bannon was on fire, but he didn't bring him up. So I think maybe they use a little bit more of the internal metrics that they have. Like, I don't know how lucky they're being. I I don't know what they do, but clearly it didn't help Bannon get up here. So I I can't think that it means much because Jemai Jones was on fire earlier in the season. They didn't bring him up. They actually brought him up when he was kind of cold. So not sure what goes into the decision, but I don't think it's performance on the field. Yeah, you you have to go back and look too. Like, I mean, were they hanging breaking balls that he got a hold of and was able to send out? I mean, what was what quality of pitchers was was he facing? We have to go back and look. I mean, there's a lot of home runs, a lot of games to go back and look during that hot streak. But I think a lot of those factors cut into it. And yeah, he might have been hot, but then you've seen him recently. He's kind of cooled off again. I don't remember the last time he's home run. It's been a couple of days. A lot of zero for threes, zero for fours recently. Uh, so it's it's a streak, yeah, and maybe you do want to bring him up when he's hot, but if you don't think he can sustain that, then I think that's the issue where you go ahead and maybe keep him down. But, yeah, it's probably just a small piece, if any piece, to that equation. You would hope that they don't completely ignore it, but at the same time, I think like both of you said, there's probably a lot of data that goes into those decisions, and some of it and probably a lot of it we don't have access to. So I would say that, you know, Maybe it gets them on, it gets Bannon on the radar a little bit more, but I don't know that it would be the major factor in deciding whether or not to call him up. So uh, Preakness07 asks, this time next year, who are the starters at each position? So I think to, to simplify this, let's go with the starting nine, and you guys can throw out as many pitchers as you want to put in there. Uh, if you want to go full five, that's fine. If you just want to go the pitcher that you're going to be, you know, Devoting your whole evenings to to watch, that's fine too. And we're talking major leagues here, correct? I would guess so, yes. I guess I'll start. I'll say Adley Rutschman is your catcher in August 30th, 2022. Ryan Mountcastle is playing first base. Taron Vavra is playing second base. I will say Ramon Urias is playing shortstop. I'll say... Kyle Seeger is playing third base. <laughs> um, Austin Hayes is in left field. Kyle Stowers is in right field. Cedric Mullins is in center field. And let's see, who's my DH? Let's go. Robert Newstrom is your DH. And Grayson Rodriguez is in the starting rotation. Michael Bauman's in the starting rotation. John Means. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's Rutschman's obviously going to be the catcher at this point next year. I think you're going to have Ryan Mountcastle probably at first base. Trey Mancini probably traded, probably not on the roster here. Uh, second base, either Jemai Jones or Taron Vavra. I'm probably going to say Vavra there. Shortstop's going to be some free agent signing. Uh, probably some guy that they were hoping to flip, maybe didn't, or it's going to be like a another, you know, it could be Ramon Arias or it could be a Caden Grenier type situation there. Carlos Correa. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, one of those big free agent signings, though. Um, third base, I don't know. I mean, this, this is tough, and I, I didn't <laughs> have to like pull up the Orioles roster. Like, I don't watch Orioles games anymore. Um, <laughs> Hayes, hopefully, sure, he's up there. I don't, I don't think Santander is back. I don't think DJ Stewart. DJ Stewart, hopefully, is not on the roster next year. Uh, I think that your outfield is probably something like Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, and 
I don't, I don't want to say Diaz because I don't think he's going to cut it either. I, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, it is. Thanks a lot, Mister Seven. I think I'll say this. I'll say this. I do feel more confident now in saying that I think that they are going to sign more free agents than we've seen in the past. Maybe I know a lot of Orioles fans will probably like they're not going to believe until they see it. I do think the Orioles go out and sign a few more free agents, and and so you're going to see Rodriguez up. You're going to see Rutschman up. uh, You're going to see Bauman up. You're probably going to see Kyle Bradish. You're going to see a lot of these guys make at this point next year on the active roster. And times are going to be better, hopefully, because could you imagine the conversations if Kyle Bradish comes up and he is a bust and Kevin Smith is a bust and all these relievers are bust and we're still sitting here trying to find a starter behind to work behind John Means. I got depressed again and I want to move on. Stop (laughs) stop explaining Dan Connolly's wildest dreams right now. (laughs) I'll, I'll go over my picks real quick. At catcher, there's going to be Pedro Severino back there again. Uh, I'm just joking. It's going to be Adley Rutzman. First base will be Ryan Mountcastle. Second base will be Taryn Vavra. I'm going to throw out a name, and I don't really know why I'm throwing it out. I just am. The third base will be Eduardo Escobar. He hits for power, probably be signed to a reasonable contract. He'll be at third base. Ramona Rios at shortstop. Austin Hayes in left field. Cedric Mullins in center field. Kyle Stowers and right Anthony Santander will be traded in the offseason. And I'll just go ahead and say that I think Trey Mancini's DH. And just interpret that as you will, because I don't want to get into the whole extensive debate right now. But let's just say Trey Mancini's DH. And then your rotation will have John Means and Grayson Rodriguez in it. Uh, it's a fun team. And maybe yeah. DL Hall gets healthy and, and lights the world on fire, too. So, Yeah. And when the Orioles' big free agent signings of the offseason are Eduardo Escobar and Sandy Leone, you heard it here first. Hey, you make Vivek happy if you do that. Yeah. It's not a bad move. Uh, so yeah. we'll, uh, going back to the minors now, any thoughts on the Florida Complex League and the Dominican Summer League? I know we're going to touch on uh, some Florida Complex League stuff in our final segment. I did want to mention one thing for August, which is that we finally saw Creed Willems on the field. Uh, he made his debut in the month uh, down at the Florida Complex League, has appeared in six games so far. Um, yeah, this is an 18-year-old, years away, but if you listen to our draft coverage, you know that he's a guy that I think the three of us are intrigued by a little bit. Catcher who has some power from the left side. The Orioles were able to sign him away from a commitment to TCU by going over slot uh, in the eighth round. So that was something of note after the promotions took place the Florida Complex League saw at least one notable debut. Yeah, and I think the, the FCL is still pretty exciting right now on a day-to-day basis. We have Steven Acevedo, Isaac De Leon, Michelle Desson. There's lots of the international talent like we always talk about. And even down in the Dominican Summer League, you've got Samuel Basalo starting to put things together offensively, hit his fourth home run today. Michael Hernandez still needs to fill out his frame, but he's walking a good amount and not striking out a ton. Anderson De Los Santos bursts onto the scene, and then there's a few pitchers that are performing well. I don't know how sustainable or, you know, what their stuff is, but it's at least a good start. So it's it's. I think they are pretty pleased with what's going on with the two teams in the FCL and DSL this year, if you were to ask them. For sure. I mean, I think for me, the things that stick out are definitely Michelle Deson continues to put up big numbers. Uh, I mean, just follow Eric Garfield. We had him on the other week to talk about it. Follow his feed. Great videos there. Um, I love seeing Deson continue to rake and hit well and field well. 
And for me, the other big one is Isaac De Leon. I feel like there was a lot of early struggles, a lot of uh, sub 200 batting average for much of the season. And now I think he's hitting close to 300. I want to say Yeah, so just under 300. I mean, that's solid. He's continuously continued to tick up. Uh, that's going to be a really fun one for me, I think. Uh, the pitching, like you mentioned, yeah, it's that's harder to get a read on because we don't know what guys are throwing and stuff. I will say I'm, I've been kind of disappointed in the numbers from Luis Ortiz. Uh, but again, that's, you know, we're not able to watch those guys on a daily basis. It's a lot harder to kind of evaluate that, but you're seeing good numbers and Trenton Craig as well. A lot of good numbers from, from the 20th round draft pick this year. So he could be an exciting name that I know a lot of Orioles fans are, are picking him as kind of their sleeper prospect from this draft class. Daily owns a guy that's been interesting to me for a while. He was, uh, brought over from the Marlins and Richard Blyer trade, uh, during the 2020 season. Listed at 6'2", 170, so you know he's going to get bigger. May outgrow shortstop, but, you know, as Kobe Perez said in an article that Joe Trezor wrote before the season, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he mentioned that, you know, Johnny Perez or Johnny Peralta was someone that many people believed would move off shortstop and he's in the minor leagues, and he had, like, a 15-year career in the major leagues. So Dave Leone's got an interesting skill set, and, you know, as Nick mentioned, he's really turned it around with the bat. And I think now, if nothing else, he's a guy we can count on seeing in Delmarva on opening day next year. You know, as long as everything, you know, he stays healthy. So definitely a guy that intrigues me. Yeah, he's got smooth actions out there at shortstop. He might outgrow it, but at least pertains well to if he has to move, he can, you know, do an efficient job wherever he ends up. So we'll move on now to our final segment where we talk about the player that's not on our top 30 list that has stood out to us recently, whether it's been a good game, good week, or a good month, which we've gotten into a lot tonight. And I'll go with my pick, and that's Johnny Reiser, who we had on our show last week. Reiser, uh, he talked about this a little bit, which was the slump he got into at A Bowie, particularly over the month of July, was really the first slump of his professional career. And he battled his way out of it in August, batting 305 and 885 OPS and three home runs. He homered on the game on uh, August 28th against Erie. So Riser, we know he's a good athlete from watching him in the outfield, uh, hitting again. So that's my pick for this week. I love I love the grand slam hit the other day, and I was really upset that I could not join you guys on Monday night because I really enjoyed that interview. Riser seemed like a pretty cool laid-back guy and a guy who just gets it. I feel like he, he gets heading. He understands this process. And I'm really pulling up for him. My guy is Lamar Sparks, another outfielder. It's been extremely hard for me to contain my excitement when I watch Lamar Sparks play because I've waited like four years to watch him play. And he's one of those reasons why I just love minor league baseball so much because he's someone that is probably not supposed to make it after all these injuries. But since he's been promoted to Aberdeen, he has an OPS of over 1,000 right now, uh, hitting over 300. Seven games last week, he hit a home run, a double, a triple, walked four times, 846 OPS. I, the magic may run out with Lamar Sparks. We'll see how high it can go. But right now, I, whatever keeps this spark alive, there we go, um, <laughs> keep doing it. I mean, it's, it's just fun to watch this guy overcome some serious injuries and, and continue to play well at the lower levels of the minor leagues. So I'm happy for him. Yeah, absolutely. I had someone ask me, you know, is Lamar Sparks, is Gene Carmona, are these guys prospects? And it's like, I don't know. Let's see. I'm happy that they're performing, and hopefully it continues. And 
if say he starts at double A Bowie or at least gets there next year and still performing, then yeah, he's back on the prospect radar. So just kind of like a hold and evaluate later type of situation, but I'm happy for him. And I have an outfielder as well. It's the previously mentioned Michelle Disson. He batted 563 with a 588 on base percentage and a 750 slugging percentage for a 1338 OPS with four runs, a home run, five RBIs, and a stolen base and 16 at bats over the past week. And I think he could ultimately end up being, even though Taron Vavra is in our like top 10 to 12 range of our top 50 prospects list, Desone could end up being the highlight of that trade, which was already a steal even if he wasn't in it. And he could potentially be a five-tool center fielder who does everything. Um, his walk rate is at 9%. Uh, could get a little bit higher, but he doesn't strike out a ton. And I'm excited about him. Yeah, certainly a lot of reasons to be excited about Dayson, and he has hit well. And you know that Givens trade, more than a year out now, still looks really or still looks really good for the Orioles. So, um, before we wrap up tonight, we do want to shout out our Patreon subscribers. And uh, Bob, who has joined us, we unfortunately missed it last week. Apologies for that, but uh, we'll now get the last two weeks worth of subscribers a shout out in the air. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we got a, a few since the last a couple weeks ago. We got Keith, no last name given, Ryan Corwell, Alex Gaines, Justin Daly, the man on YouTube, Vivek Chukla. Appreciate him big time. And Will, I guess his last name is Schmidt because uh, it wasn't listed, but I can see it in the email. He actually originally pledged at a lower amount and then raised his amount and said, you guys are great. I want to give you more. So that's amazing. Thank you so much, William. And, uh, yeah, shout out to those guys. And if you want some more, or not if you want some more, if you want to join them, uh, go ahead and sign up, and you'll get a pretty good bonus right away with our Top 50 Prospect update, which will be in you know laid out in text form. And we'll also have a little mini post-show here coming up to talk about it. Yep. So um, in the mean, we'll be back next week uh, with Kyle Glazer, and we'll have updates on that at BSL and the Birds on Twitter. And be sure uh, over the next week to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com, not just for the articles that Bob wrote that we discussed tonight, but for all of our great Orioles, Ravens, and other sports coverage. Be sure to join the message board and join the discussion there with our readers as well as our contributors. Uh, For Nick Stevens and Bob Phelan, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge.